But man, I'm, I'm really joyful to be here. For those of you that don't know me, I am the, the youth minister here at Mount Olive, and I'm filling in for Josh this morning. Uh, you know, it's exciting for me, but also a little nervous. Uh, but I had this devoted to memory uh, earlier this week, and I, I drove to D.C., and I was rehearsing it in the car. So if I can do this in D.C. traffic, I feel confident enough to do it right now. So, But man, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. And as you do that, I'd love to tell you a story about a group of five men in the 1950s. Now, these five men were named Roger Deren, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, and Jim Elliott. And all of these guys were young guys, ranging in from the ages of 29 to 31. And these guys, they traveled down to the country of Ecuador with the goal of evangelizing to the Harani people. And now the Harani people are some of the most primitive people on this planet. They have very little outside contact with anybody else in the world. And the Harani people are in desperate need of the gospel, and these men understood that. So they traveled down to the country of Ecuador, and they would fly a plane fairly low overhead and lower gifts to the Harani people. And they kept doing this for weeks upon weeks upon weeks before eventually feeling confident enough to get out of the plane, land the plane, get out, and make contact with these people. And they make contact initially, and they report back that things went well, things went smoothly, but eventually these Harani people would end up taking the lives of these five men. And Jim Elliott, uh, one of these missionaries, summed up their philosophy fairly well with this quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now Rachel Saint, one of the sisters of these men, and Elizabeth Elliott, the wife of Jim Elliott, would eventually come back to the country and evangelize these people and lead some of these people to Christ. They did not waste their suffering. And the issue of suffering is scattered throughout the entirety of the New Testament, and for good reason, because all of the apostles suffered throughout their entire lives for their faith, including the Apostle Paul, which this morning we're going to spend some time in this, this first chapter of his letter to the church in Colossae. And so I'll read the text here. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in this faith, stable and steadfast, not, a, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the, his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
So the Apostle Paul is writing here to the church in Colossae, and something that I found interesting in my study is that this is not a church that he plants. You know, Paul, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, is traveling around on his missionary journey, planting different churches in Ephesus and Galatia and Rome, but this is not one of the churches that he plants. You know, for all we know, Paul never once visited the church in Colossae. So it's fascinating to me that he starts off this letter by deviating from his normal style of writing. You know, normally we see the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, in this very academic theological style. But we see this verse 15 through 19 really deviate from that into a more poetic style. You'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find the Apostle Paul moved to poetry in other parts of the New Testament. And it's just fascinating to me that he talks of the preeminence and the, the firstness of Christ, and he is moved to poetry. So if I may, I want to divide this text into two sections, really. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at 15 through 19, and then I want us to focus on and see here this, this glory and majesty of Christ that Paul is proclaiming through this poetry. And then I want to look at verses 24 to 29, because this is where Paul takes a sharp turn here, going from this poetic nature and this poetic fashion into a, a conversation on his own suffering and his ministry. And then I promise we'll come back to 19 through 23. But starting off, his, his section in 15 says, Christ is preeminent, or his section in 15 rather says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so for anybody that really knows me personally, one thing that you definitely know about me is that I love the game of hockey. Like, it's my, one of my favorite pastimes. If I'm not at church or at school, I'm doing something hockey-related. The friends I was visiting in D.C. this past week, uh, she got married, they, they both got married in November, and at their wedding, I told them, like, if you guys, pl-, I sent them the, the hurricane schedule, and I told them, like, if you guys plan it on a game day, like, I'm watching the game. Lo and behold, they planned it on a game day, and I watched it that day, and they were, they were shocked, but I, I gave them fair warning. <laughs> and one of the things that I love about the game of hockey is the Stanley Cup. And the Stanley Cup is this giant chalice that the, the winner of the NHL playoffs gets. And one of my favorite things about it is on the side of the trophy, you see these rings. And on these rings are the names of all of the past winners inscribed on them. And so for anybody that loves the game of hockey, anybody that has memories of watching the game, you see on these rings the stories of the game brought back to life. So for me, like I said, I'm a big Hurricanes fan, so I look at this, this trophy and I see the names of the 2007 team that won the Stanley Cup. You know, anybody that, that loves this game, they look at this trophy and they see the names of the, the winners that they grew up loving. And just as we look at this cup and see these stories brought back to life, we see the invisible attributes of God revealed to us in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God reveals to us his invisible attributes. With the students, we've been going through the book of John, and John says, to start off his his gospel, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So while we can't see God, while we can't see his invisible attributes, we can't see his nature and his character, what we can see is the, the person, the ministry, the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, he is the full embodiment of what it means for God to enter into this created world as a creature. And we can see his character, his attributes, his nature revealed to us through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, God has revealed to us his invisible attributes 
and we can look at Christ and see these attributes. And moving along in the next section of this poem, we see verse 16, for by him all things were created. And I think this teaches us a few different truths of this God that we worship. The first being a Trinitarian truth, and that is that the Trinity, the Godhead, is in existence from eternity past. So we see that the Son does not come into existence at the Incarnation. Rather, the Son is there at creation. The Son is there from eternity past. The Holy Spirit is there at eternity past. We see Christ is present at creation. And not only that, we see that Christ is active in creation. For by him all things were created. There was nothing in this world that was made without Jesus. John, again, says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so not only that, but we see in verse 16 something else, that this was all created for him. All of creation, every landmass, every mountain, every river, all of creation was made by him and for him. And it's all made for his glory. Every single person, every single ounce of creation was made to proclaim the beauty and the glory of Christ. And again, moving along, we see in verse 17 that he is before all things and by him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so I, I majored in political science for my undergrad at the, the greatest school in the ACC, Florida State. And uh, one of the things that this really did develop in me was a love for political science. And my favorite person in political history was James Madison. And I love James Madison because he is one of the greatest constitutional thinkers that we had in our country. He is one of the biggest champions for religious liberties, but one of the most frustrating things about him is that we don't know what he believed at all, really. You know, he's this great champion for religious liberties, but we had no clue what he believed. But what we, what we do know are the beliefs of his greatest advisor, Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson is what we would call essentially a deist. And you have to be careful with 18th century America because they get the term deist, and it means a ton of different things. But what we know him to believe is this almighty creator God creates the universe, puts it into motion, and then steps back from it and lets it run its course. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't check in on it. He just lets it run its course. It's kind of like a wind-up toy. You just wind up and push forward and let, let it walk. But rather, we see in verse 17 that the Christian God is at odds with this deist thought of God. The Christian God is not only there at creation, he's not only creating the universe, rather he upholds it every second that goes by. We see that God is not just the creator of the universe, but he is the holder of the universe. He holds this universe together. There's not a second that goes by where God is not actively causing that second to tick by. There's not a minute that goes by where God is not holding the universe together, and there's not a minute that goes by where if he ceased to do so, the universe wouldn't fall apart. And so we see that this almighty creator God has not just created this universe and stepped away. Rather, he is there, present, right now, holding it together as we speak. And we see in verse 18, something I want to pay attention to is that he is the head of the body of the church. And first and foremost, how glorious is it that, that Christ is the head of his redeemed people? And something I want to pay attention to is I was looking at a, a commentary earlier to try and dive into what this text really means. And, and one of the things they pointed out is that in our context, we see the word head and we think of the central nervous system or we think of the brain, something that controls or operates the body. 
and rather the first century Christian would have thought of it to mean the first, the prototype, the beginning, the priority. And so we see that that in this poem that celebrates Christ as preeminent, Christ as the firstborn of all creation, Paul here talks about Christ as the first among the church. And something else here we see is that Paul refers to it as the body of the church. And we can be fairly certain that when he says body, he means a unity of believers. And I think it's important to look at because the church being in unity is essential. You know, whatever our differences may be, whether it's political, race, gender, if you pull for Duke or UNC, whatever it may be, we are united under the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important thing about us is that we are united under this gospel. And we are unified as the body. Paul tells the church in Corinth, The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor can the head say to the feet, I do not need you. The body is a unity of believers, and we are combined and unified under this mission for the gospel. And the second thing about verse 18 I want to look at is this. You know, why any of this? Why creation? Why does he create the universe at all? Why does he hold it together? Why does he cause every second to tick by? And he says in verse 18, so that in everything he might be preeminent. The whole purpose of this universe, the whole purpose of our lives, of creation, is so that Christ may be preeminent over everything. Christ being top of the line over everything. I think the question that, that beckons in anybody's life is, is, is Christ preeminent in our lives? You know, it's easy to suggest that he always is, but would the outsider who looks at our lives suggest that he always is the preeminent one in our lives? Do we always view him as the top of the line in our lives? Do we always view him as the greatest thing that we could ever have? Do we always view him as our greatest treasure? And as I said earlier, I want to kind of skip ahead here from this poem into verses 24 through 29. And we're going to come back to 19 through 23 in a bit. But Paul takes a sharp turn here. You know, he goes from this language about the poetic nature, the the beauty, the glory, the firstness of Christ into a topic on his own suffering. You know, he talks about he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Paul is not writing this here from, like, his own home or one of his church plants. He's writing this from the confines of a jail cell. These are what we call the prison epistles. This, Ephesians, other epistles like this, where Paul is writing this from inside of a jail cell. So Paul understands suffering. So the New Testament authors, they understand suffering. The only one of them that dies a... A, what we call a nice death is, is John, and this is after a life. So this is after a life where he has been beaten, boiled in oil, exiled for the sake of the gospel. So like Paul, like John, John still suffered throughout his life. And you know, John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, connected this to verse to First Corinthians 15:19, where Paul says, "If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied." Now that brings me to another question: is is, you know, in our sufferings, are we to be pitied? And I mean, not just in a sense of, you know, we are suffering, so pity us for that, but are we rejoicing in our sufferings? You know, Paul speaks of his sufferings, and he talks about rejoicing in them because Christ is being proclaimed through his suffering. And, you know, he says in verse 24 that he is building up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And what I think is important here is that we understand that this does not mean that the, the cross is lacking of anything. That's not what Paul is trying to say here. Rather, what he is saying here is that the atonement, that Christ's death on the cross is not lacking in anything. Rather, what I think he's trying to say here 
is that what is lacking is that these things are not known in the world. That this is still a mystery to some and that God's intention is this thing that has been hidden for so long, that has been a mystery for so long, is now intended to be revealed to all of the Gentiles. And as I said earlier, Paul's message here is not if he might suffer. It's under the impression that suffering will endure, that suffering will continue. And Paul's posture in that is not of sadness or despair. Rather, he's rejoicing that it, that it will point to the God that he serves, that his suffering will point to the God that, we serves, that he serves. And so I want to call us to this and suffer and suffer well for the sake of the gospel. Don't waste your suffering. And I know that there is genuine suffering that occurs here. I don't want to mitigate that at all. But what I want, us to, what I want to call us to, rather, is to not waste our suffering whether it's criticism or cancer, whatever it may be, use our suffering for the sake of the gospel so that Christ's name would be revealed to those that don't know him. That it be revealed to the, those who are still lost. And so the question is, how do we combine these sections? You know, How do we combine the, the poem that Paul speaks of, the preeminence and the, the firstness of Christ with this conversation on suffering? And, you know, Paul tells the, the church in Corinth that they ought to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I think this is how we ought to apply this here as well. You know, when we, when we see Christ the way that Paul does, when we acknowledge him as the preeminent God, when he, we acknowledge him as greater than anything that this world has to offer, when we see him as greater than anything that this world could possibly offer us, as all-sufficient, all-satisfying, we will be willing to give our lives, to give our all for the sake of the gospel. And when we see Christ in the same way that Paul does, we're going to be willing to give everything to suffer for the sake of the cross. You know, a while ago I, I set off to read a biography on each of the U.S. presidents. And I haven't finished it yet, but I got to a book a little while ago on Abraham Lincoln titled Abe, Abraham Lincoln in Hard Times. And I didn't like it because it, it really focused on the things around him, the things that influenced him, that, that shaped him as a young young man. And it looked at you know, the, the poems, the, the books that he read, and I was looking for more of a, a detailed account of his administration of his life, but rather what this book did show me was what became my favorite poem. And it's titled, Why Should the Spirit of a Mortal Be Proud? by William Knox. And the entirety of the poem is talking about the same thing, but the last stanza says this, "'Tis the wink of an eye, tis the draught of a breath, from the blossom of health to the paleness of death, from the gilded saloon to the beer and the shroud, oh, why should the spirit of a mortal be proud? And the theme of this poem speaks on the, the briefness and the brevity of life. It talks about, you know, life is fleeting and there's nothing for the mortal man to build up for. I mean, how true is that, that, that for the mortal man who hopes in this life only, there is nothing to build up for? And one of the reasons that this really resonated with me is this poem is unintentionally theological in its nature. It talks about the vanity that is found in the mortal man and his life and the hopelessness that those outside of Christ sit with. And so without even meaning to, it provides an outlook, a theological outlook rather, to those who are far from Christ. And here is the thing is that we in and of ourselves have nothing to be proud of. You know, we will live, most of us, average lives and then just die. And that's okay. That's not bad. There's nothing grand or spectacular about any of us, but what is grand and spectacular is the God that we serve. And so while we live these lives, while we live these normal, average lives, we serve a great, grand, spectacular God who is worthy of every ounce of our lives, who is worthy of everything that we have to offer. 
And so there will be suffering throughout this life for the Christian. There's been a push to say that that's not the case, but let me reassure you, there will be suffering throughout this life for the Christian. This life was never meant to be easy. And there will be toil and heartache and pain, but we hope in this and that our suffering will point to the God that we serve and that that which is a mystery, which has been hidden to some, will now be revealed through our suffering. And we do this because we know that he is preeminent over all things. He is the top of the line. He is above and greater than all things. And like I said, I want to close with this. Is I said we'd come back to these verses 19 through 23. And it says here that for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so we ought to live lives where we suffer greatly for the sake of the cross, because he is preeminent over all things. And you know, when I was in high school, we listened to this song called Simple Gospel. And the song is really simple, but it says in the refrain, I will rejoice in the simple gospel. And this section here really highlights this simple gospel that Paul proclaims. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus, being truly God and truly man, lived a life free from sin, and through him and his death on the cross, he reconciled all things to himself. And he made peace through the blood that was shed on the cross. And while we were born enemies of God and enmity with God, if we hold fast and continue in this faith, we are able to be presented wholly in the sight of the Father without any blemish or accusation. And if we hold fast and continue in this faith, we will see the Father and be made right with him. And so, again, to the non-Christian in this room, I urge anybody to repent and believe in the Lord. And the Lord is patient and he is slow to anger, but that patience will one day run dry. And so for those who are not in Christ, one day his wrath will onset to all those who are lost. So I urge you to repent and believe in this gospel. The book of Romans tells us that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that you will be saved. And to the Christian in this room, I mentioned earlier that if the gospel wasn't true, we ought to be most pitied in this life. But here's what I want to reassure you of, is that we don't have a blind faith. Rather, we, we, we know that we worship a God who has revealed himself to us. So let us hope in this gospel, trust in it, and be sure that as we suffer in this life, we can do this with joy because we have a hope, because we worship a Christ who is preeminent over all things. And we don't just hope in Christ for this life. No, we have hope that he is faithful and true to his word. And he will be faithful and true to his promises. Please pray with me. Father, I, th I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and you have given us the, the gift that is your son on the cross, that you have given us the, the gift of salvation so that anybody who believes in your name and, and repents of their sin, Lord, can come to you and be made right with you, Lord. I thank you that you would welcome a sinner like me into your fold, Lord, that, that through the death of Christ and his resurrection, Lord, that, that we can be made right with you, Lord. I pray that, that as we suffer, Lord, you give us strength to do so with hope and with faith, Lord, and that, that you would not let our sufferings go to waste, that you would use our sufferings, Lord, to point others to your name and, and let this mystery that has been hidden to so many for so long be revealed to them, Lord.
And let us use our sufferings, Lord, to share this gospel. And let us preach this gospel. And let us, let us disregard the cost, Lord, because your kingdom is greater than all things. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be down here below if anybody would like to pray. But... I'll stand seeing 277. Take my life and let it be. seated for just a moment please <clears throat> at this time um, if anybody needs to leave or visitors want to leave uh, now be time to do so if you want to if not we're going to have just a quick church conference to have the nominations for deacons for 2022 and let me read on the ballot what the uh, qualifications for deacons are out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, it states, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let, those, let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, 
ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness 